Hello and welcome to the Iris Murdoch podcast. Today I'm joined by a really stellar lineup of guests to discuss Murdoch's engagement with the fiction and, of course, philosophy of Jean-Paul Sartre. The subject of her first published book, of course, Sartre Romantic Rationalist in 1953, and that's been claimed as one of her most underrated non-fictional works. That book draws on her 1945 notebook when she met Sartre in Brussels. And of course, in 1954, uh, she publishes Under the Net, which draws on some of these themes as well. Romantic Rationalist was revised and reissued in 1987 with a new introduction by Murdoch, uh, but this is not the extent of her engagement with his work. She refers to him in numerous philosophical essays throughout her career, and he's a major interlocutor in metaphysics as a guide to morals in, from 1992. And he even appears, well, at least his writings do, in her novel, The Green Knight from 1993. So much to discuss. And joining me today uh, to think about Murdoch and Sartre are Justin Brokes. Hello, Justin. Hello. Hi. Uh, Justin's professor of philosophy at Brown University in the US. Uh, he's probably best known to us for the collection Iris Murdoch Philosopher, which is an essential for the shelves uh, from Oxford University Press, but he also works on the theory of perception, metaphysics and colour. And he's currently working on Murdoch's unpublished work on Martin Heidegger, as well as a commentary on her collection, Sovereignty of Good. And he was previously a guest on the podcast where we discussed that wonderful three essay collection. I'm also joined by Gary Browning. Hi, Gary. Hi. Gary's Professor of Politics at Oxford Brookes University. Uh, best known in the Murdoch community for his uh, works, including Why Iris Murdoch Matters from 2019 and the edited collection Iris Murdoch on Truth and Love from 2018. His most recent publication is Dylan at 80, celebrating uh, Bob Dylan's 80th birthday, which was published recently and has been doing very well. And he's beginning research into a monograph on Murdoch and politics. And as part of that, he's also got an essay out next year on Murdoch and Hegel, which is due out with the Murdochian mind from Routledge. And of course, as we know, Gary was a, previously a guest on the Murdoch and politics podcast. So it's great to welcome him back as well. And my final guest is Alison Scott Bauman. Hi, Alison. Hello. Alison's Professor of Society and Belief at the Centre of Islamic Studies in the Near and Middle East Departments at SOAS in London. And her work has two interrelated and also distinct research strands, social justice and philosophy. And her research has been widely recognised and rewarded by uh, research grants from Leverhulme. And she's currently working on an ARHRC project um, that's been funded by them on having difficult conversations with students. And that's connected with her representation, re representing Islam on campus project. I think she's best known to those of us in Murdoch circles for her co-edited collection, Iris Murdoch and the Moral Imagination. And she's also written a chapter on Murdoch and Sartre, which is also coming out in the Murdochian mind next year. So a better lineup um, I couldn't imagine, I think, for this, um, what's gonna prove, I think, a really fascinating podcast. Alison, I'm going to call on you first, I think, to expand on my very sketchy overview of Murdoch's in, um, engagement with Sartre from, you know, the, the 40s right the way through to the 90s. Could you say a little bit more about the impact that he had on Murdoch's thought and maybe just unpack some of those um, ideas that we, I, was, uh, I mentioned at the top of the podcast? Sure, thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. Um, I'm going to, I will give a brief overview. I'm also going to contextualise um, Murdoch by the end uh, in the modern struggles that we're having in terms of um, chilling of speech, conversation, and the attack uh, upon liberalism by populist groups. That sounds great, thank you. So um, 
Iris Murdoch, 1919-1999, and Jean-Paul Sartre, 1905-1980. They lived through war, fascism, communism, and the decay of liberalism. Sartre, as we know, was a, really a left-wing populist, although the term wasn't commonly used then. And he challenged ideologically these isms. He was an existentialist, um, like Murdoch, who also used existentialism, um, although she moved beyond it somewhat, I'll speak about that later. They were both critical of isms, uh, and yet they were very much of their time trapped within, I would argue, both existentialism and subsequently structuralism. And in her 1953 book, Sartre, the Romantic Rationalist, which was the first English language study of Sartre, she does critique Sartre ex extensively on his existential position. And she also critiques her, his views on the way liberal discourse um, can be attacked by somebody in his, of his bent who was really strongly um, ideological and socialist and Marxist. I think throughout her career, he was the other for her. She benefited greatly again and again from analyzing his work, rejecting his formulaic ideal, ideology led approach, and she derived considerable heuristic value from that exercise. Clearly as time went on, she used him less and less, but in my opinion, he was always there. Now, I will come later to her development of what she calls the speaking person and the way she navigated liberalism's pitfalls about how to communicate better in order to counter the brutal tribal binaries of right-wing populist rhetoric. We've got to go beyond existentialism, beyond liberalism, and beyond structuralism in the end, in order to understand how she was transformed really by her contact with adoption of and rejection of Sartre. Just to set the scene historically, when she applied in 1946 for the Sarah Smithson studentship at Cambridge, she said, I'm currently reading uh, being a nothingness, she quotes it in French. Her French was very good. She wrote many, many letters in good French. Uh, she calls him that strange genius in 1946. She'd already met him fleetingly. And she also says, I am pleased, this is in her application to Sarah Smithson, I'm pleased with Sartre's somewhat grim picture of man as self-creating from moment to moment by his decisions. Uh, it's a beautiful comment. So what else do we know already about these two? We know that um, her views on existentialism and on Sartre developed in the novelist's metaphysician, in the existentialist hero, and in Sartre's The Emotions, Outline of Ethereal, written in 1950, and The Existentialist Political Myth. Uh, as we know, in 1953, she wrote what is a much neglected monograph. I think it's an excellent critique of Sartre. And she followed this, of course, with Hegel in Modern Dress, The Sovereignty of Good, Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals, all of which feature discussions of Sartre. In 1987, she uh, produced a new introduction, a more detailed introduction to the 1953 monograph, which I think my colleagues will speak about later. Um, and so, again, you can see quite literally that he was her companion throughout in many ways. 
Sartre himself, by the time she was using his work, was already beginning to wane. Uh, his existentialism came to be seen by the structuralists in the 1960s as uh, subjectivity incarnate. It, they felt it was just so self-regarding and um, narcissistic. Structuralism displaced it, very successful attempt to write the subject out of the understanding of the world and replace that with structures and coded anal anal analysis. Now, in that context, uh, Murdoch regularly, repeatedly came to the came to the rescue of what she understood liberalism to be. And she repeatedly returns to both the strengths and the weaknesses of liberalism, which contrast considerably with the way she understands Sartre to function. So traditionally, liberalism measures out the world as opportunities for personal freedom, tolerance for the views of others. We know that this doesn't necessarily work. The broader society becomes, the more multicultural it becomes, for example, the more chance there is that uh, people are, who are cohabiting in societies actually hold very different views to each other. Liberal ideologies also look upon worldviews like the neoliberal free market economy and sometimes take ownership of them. This obviously can, can make us fearful of liberalism because it seems to smack of excess privilege, entitlement, solipsism, and neoliberalism is indeed um, quite a rude word currently. And yet for Murdoch, the most systematic exposition of modern liberal morality is existentialism. This is the basis, the basic belief, existentialism, the basic belief that the individual has irrefutable existence. But for Sartre, that existence is bound to fail because the choices we make, which we have to make, will very often be meaningless. And for him, the solution was to follow an ideology. In his case, it was Marxism. In Paris, in those decades, Stalinism uh, as a version of Marxism was very was dominant. And Mar Murdoch, during her wartime years, attempted and ultimately rejected Marxism. Now, existentialism for her, the subject is me, but my existence is meaningless led her to feel even more strongly that she needed to support liberalism. The subject is me and I have the authority to make meaning. She then came subsequently and critiqued Derrida on this subject to structuralism. The subject is the meaning of semi-scientific coded structures of language. And she moved beyond structuralism to argue that it's necessary to separate liberal ideology from liberal talk. So she's using style as a moral vehicle and through her work in novels, the conversations, the endless conversations she creates, uh, she offers, I would argue, an urgent and necessary way of countering right-wing populism as we understand it. I think it's reasonable to say that structuralism 
displaced existentialism um, from the 60s onwards for about 20 years. It was very powerful. And she was worried that structuralism, which is codification and its structural understanding, semi-scientific semi analysis, she was worried that structuralists understood language, which again, she's using increasingly as a moral vehicle, that the structuralists understood language to comprise closed structures to be analyzed, mapped, and understood as predictable. So in MGM, she says, uh, this in some way establishes a general removal of language from the world, and therefore also the removal as otios of the world. So she gives structuralism short shrift and rejected Derrida's, what she perceived as Derrida's deterministic approach. Um, I'm going to use an example of her development from Sartrean dogmatic idealism to a more liberal response when I look at her book, The Red and the Green, about Irish politics, two cousins, Andrew and Pat, are on opposing sides, they could kill each other in battle, yet Murdoch creates a sequence of convincing debates between them. She uses conversation here to temper the potential for conflict, and this means that uh, she is presenting, this is the mid-60s, she's presenting um, a way of countering the ideological beliefs that these two young warriors share and embody. She also, in the same novel, in a more characteristically Madochian way, she uses sexual attraction as a trope for the difficulties we experience with mutual recognition. And we watch Lady Kinnard manipulating her admirers. This is much more the later Murdoch. She develops Millie Kinnard as a complex catalyst who has repeated failures uh, to make herself understood, to make the sexual catches and targets that she wishes to. And yet somehow there is some imperfect yet shared reality through conversation. So we see, I think the red and the green offers almost a Janus-faced uh, presentation of her creating ideological conversations for the two young men, which is a Sartrean idea, but also using much more liberal uh, presentations with Lady Kinnard, which we see also in her later novels. Now, finally, I want to come to populism. Populism, the final ism that I want to talk about today. We could see that as a neologism in the context of Murdoch and Sartre, because although it's been around for over a century, the term wasn't used in the in the context of either of them. Um, but I think what we're seeing in modern society is a front, full frontal attack on liberalism uh, mounted by extremist populism, actually from the left as well as from the right, to be honest. Populism in its extreme form, it mocks the ruling elite for being privileged and um, asserts the purity and the misunderstood nature of the people, the majority. Now, uh, this, in fact, uh, ironically, populism in this form has actually adopted liberalism in an extreme form, its libertarian form, um, demanding the entitlement to speak as freely as one wishes about anything. And it defends 
for itself what it then proceeds to attack in others. So in this way, extreme extremist populism, both of the left and the right, has really dealt some body blows, in my view, to the concept of liberal conversation, which Murdoch, as I say repeatedly, critiques, but also ultimately finds to be the best instrument for her messages. Let us situate this within the um, Murdochian development of the novel form. She de develops these open novels where the, the characters can run free across a very broad canvas. And she sees herself in that context as very, very different from Sartre. From page 148 of Sartre, Romantic Rationalist, she's very blunt. Of Sartre, she says, his inability to write a great novel is a tragic symptom of a situation which affects us all. And if I could just share with you what her three assertions about which lead her to make this condemnation are. She, and these reveal her own aspirations, her own desires. Remember this is 1954, so it's early. These are her, these are her three assertions about why he fails in the novel. First, you thought he's a brilliant playwright. Um, the formulaic ritualistic elements of playwriting, uh, she admires them deeply, but that means that she develops characters who represent a single issue or an aspect of an issue, which she does to an extent with the two young warriors in the red and the green. But she feels that this denies the novelist and the reader, this is the second point, their apprehension, this is a quote, an apprehension of the absolute, of the absurd, irreducible uniqueness of people and of their relations with each other. So this formulaic, um, ideologically based presentation of people is, is far too cardboard-like, it's far too flat. So she analyzes the ways in which he demanded of the novel that it must make life comprehensible. The setting of the world in order, the reduction to the intelligible. And she thought this was impossible. It's impossible, it's undesirable. And uh, because of the specificity of Sartre's top topics, um, it, 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 uh, it will lose a lot of readers in her view. So for example, if you're not interested in Spanish Civil War, then you won't be interested in the trilogy he wrote. Finally, and thirdly, um, she argued that because Sartre relied so heavily upon ideology, upon abstraction, upon theoretical structuring, she felt that that doesn't have a place in a novel because abstraction detracts irrevocably from the author's ability to analyze the human condition in ways that obviously are going to be messy according to, according to Murdoch, but they're going to be synthetic approaches which come closer to a, a warm and humane attempt to deal with Kantian antinomies. These antinomies being opposites like love and justice, which are vital, but they are actually irreconcilable. And to just give another example from the red and the green, um, Declan Kibbert writes about this. He, he mentions Sartre explicitly and um, Kibbert re 
asserts the sultry nature of the, of the main characters, the colonial Anglo-Irishman, Andrew, the, the independent-seeking Irish, Pat and Cathal. And we see, we can see, as I've said earlier on, we can see Murdoch in this early novel making use of sultry techniques, which she had already denounced. Her preference is to use a flawed, but she thinks vital, form of liberalism in developing conversations in her novels. And uh, ironically, we do actually see this still ending badly in The Red and the Green. Andrew and Pat are on opposing sides. They could kill each other. Uh, and yet she creates a sequence of convincing debates between them. Uh, as I've said, uh, Millie, however, is a complex catalyst later in her in her attempts to to ensnare uh, other individuals into love relationships with her, but this shows a shared reality according to conversation, because it attempts to deal in a messy and yet powerful way with the other. That's lovely. Thank you, Alison. And um, thank you not just for sort of e exploring what Murdoch does across her career, but also giving us that wonderful reading of the red and the green. You, see, it, it, you know, even though this is my one of my interests, bringing, the, bringing those two subjects together, I hadn't quite thought of the red and the green in, in that way before. So that, that's great. Thank you very much. Justin, if I could call on you, please, to, to give us a little bit more detail into romantic rationalists. Perhaps you could explore that for, for the listeners. Thanks very much. Um, let me say, this is a, it strikes me a wonderful, wonderful book. It's also exceedingly hard to read easily. I mean by that, if you just pick it up and, so to speak, look for a few conclusions and a couple of arguments that you can pull out, it's going to be exceedingly hard. Um, it's very concentrated. I find that well, my first few readings gave me relatively little pleasure. Um, and I think it's entirely my own fault. Um, one has to read it rather slowly. Now, it might help to know that it is already a reduction and a compression of a much larger project. What Murdoch contracted to deliver was a book on Sartre, de Beauvoir and Camus, as novelists. She had a contract in May 1950. A little later, she talks of it in her letters as a book on Sartre and de Beauvoir. And then what eventually appeared, of course, was virtually entirely on Sartre, though she refers to de Beauvoir, particularly as in a certain sense, the best that we have for completing the project of Lettres le Néant, uh, being and nothingness, um, in respect of a moral philosophy. At the end, we're told that this will be continued in future work and the, um, the continuation doesn't appear in Sartre, except there are various things you can pick up in various, you know, distributed discussions, but there isn't the systematic presentation and one might look to de Beauvoir for the answer on that. So 
de Beauvoir can't be left out, but she's not a fundamental subject in the book as we have it. I imagine it was extremely frustrating for Iris Murdoch because she'd obviously brought together hugely more material than she could fit in. And even the book that we have, even on the subject, namely Sartre, that she narrows it down to in the end, is absolutely packed. And I actually looked a couple of days ago at how the book, you know, she admits in various letters that she had to have a bit of a fight with the publishers over the length of the thing. And I looked at the other books in the same series as it appeared in, namely Studies in Modern European Literature and Thought. And other books appear almost uniformly as 62 pages long, 61 pages long, 63 pages long, 64 pages long. Murdoch's is um, 78 pages long. And the print is exceedingly small in the original edition. It's about 30% longer than other books in the series. And she obviously was straining at the limits of the genre. I mean, as it was set for her in this series on modern European thought, and she's just packing in stuff. This is one reason why it's such a difficult book. It's simply extremely concentrated. Almost nothing is said twice over. But in a certain sense, there is one big debate in the whole thing. Namely, is there an alternative to Sartre? Sartre presents us with what can seem an unbearable alternative. Either our existence is meaningless, or we are to be mere objects. I mean, in a certain sense, we may desire to make ourselves into objects. There's the idea of the human being trying to make of herself or himself an être en soi pour soi, a combination of both the, so to speak, conscious being and the wholly objective being that mere material things have in the world. And then there is the conclusion in Sartre that this is an impossible aim. It's the aim to become God. And it puts human beings in an absurd situation to which there is no escape. Um, there is a pursuit of liberty and a certain kind of limited meaning there, but there is, in a certain sense, no stable situation for the human being in the world. And one of the things that Iris Murdoch is going to try to do is to say, okay, this is a picture of a person's diagnosis of his condition in the world, but it's not the only picture we can give and other others can give themselves a, an alternative. And what she's going to be doing, I think, I mean, this obviously is one reading among possibly many, but I think in many ways Sartre sets the agenda that she is going to um, deliver on over 20 years and more of philosophical work that follows. Now, um, 
In the Sartre book, she mentions a number of thinkers who can can point out there are alternatives to the Sartrean picture. She mentions Lukács, um, his studies in the European realistic novel, uh, Marcel, and Buber. And uh, certainly when Sartre says hell is other people, um, Marcel says, well, I don't see why he has to take this view. Uh, there might be people who think that heaven is other people. Other people are themselves a form of stuff to be delighted in. Um, she will later have more materials to use in the building of an alternative. And I think above all, Simone Weil, um, I think also a certain kind of way of using Kant, which will grow upon her. She's going to use this in uh, The Idea of Perfection, the first essay of The Sovereignty of Good. But I'm tempted um, to read a couple of passages. Um, I mean, there may be people who already know this book well, but it seems to me that um, it's worth going slowly over certain places where you can see what Murdoch is going to set up as the alternative. And um, one of the great things is the moments where in the text, there is a but. She'll set out what Sartre wants to tell us, and then she'll say, but. And if one just looks through the text and looks for the buts, you'll find many, great statements of what she's going to say. He has forgotten what he has um, failed to give any decent place to. So I'm going to take a couple of passages out of the second chapter where she is summarizing the three novels that are, that had already appeared at the time she was writing as part of Les Chemins de la Liberté, The Paths of Freedom. Um, there's going to be a fourth volume, only parts of it had appeared at the time when she's writing this book. So she talks a little about what will be the topic of the fourth novel in the uh, series, but she's basically talking about the first three parts. So um, let me see. A, Towards the end of that chapter, she talks about um, the absence of real communication among people within the novel. In the absence of any real communication, the other person is metamorphosed into an alarming enigma, even a Medusa. But Mathieu's isolation, Mathieu being the intellectual figure who in some ways is close to Sartre himself, Mathieu's isolation, the drama of which we may accept in his relations with Ivich, appears where his relations with Marcel, his mistress, are concerned as a sort of casualness or carelessness on the part of the author. Mathieu is seen as alternating between a dogged absorption in events and glimpses of his own freedom, which he pictures as a sort of grace, a sort of crime, 
and which bids him simply to drop Marcel. Sartre has not troubled to see the relation between Mathieu and his mistress. What interests him and Mathieu is not Marcel's plight at all, but an elaborately conceived problem of which her plight is the occasion. So the abstract problem is far more important to Sartre than the person within this. She complains, Sartre bypasses the complexity of the world of ordinary human relations, which is also the world of ordinary moral virtues. Virtue, I think, is an important word here, and we'll see half a paragraph on how she emphasizes it again. Orest, that's Orestes in Les Mouches, remarks that human life begins on the other side of despair. So just to cut in, in a certain sense, radical reflection, which removes our illusion, leads to despair. And only beyond that can human life begin. Up till that point, and now I'm going back to Murdoch's text, all is bad faith. The primary virtue within Sartre's system is sincerity. In Les Chemins, the series of four novels, we constantly feel the violent swing from a total blindness to a total freedom, from the silence of unreason to an empty and alarming babble of reflection. Human life just simply begins. But, and here is the great but again, but the complexity of the moral virtues, which must return, it's another important word for her, more deeply apprehended perhaps with the task of going on from there, this we are not shown. Sartre takes his heroes up to the point of insight, realization, despair, and there he leaves them. They may fall back, but they do not know how to go on. There's only one hint of deep commitment, of real emotion in the personal sphere, and that is in the relationship between Brunet and Schneider, who's a gentle, humane, skeptical figure who turns out to have been an ex-party member. So there is a genuine relation there. But here, we feel that the gaucherie and embarrassment of Brunet in this relation are somehow shared by the author. There is a touch of an intensity which remains unanalyzed. The waters are troubled, but Schneider perishes, and it was, after all, as Sartre entitles it in Les Temps Modernes, un drôle d'amitié, a funny kind of friendship. Then I think we can see in that passage so many of the concerns that Murdoch will want to take up. Um, the thought that there is such a thing as virtue, there is such a thing as meaning in human interaction, and that the one of the great demands upon the novelist, and it will also be a demand just upon all of us, is to see each other, to see 
and that we need to return ourselves to ordinary, in some ways, pre-reflective awarenesses. Now, there's just one other little, well, I don't know, there are a couple of wonderful, wonderful topics that get taken up, which later will blossom in the um, mature, but I say mature writings, I mean the middle period writings, if we take this as a relatively early work. There's a wonderful discussion of Sartre talking about the feeling of emptiness at a moment of important choice and the way that entirely accidental things can seem to be, so to speak, all that had weight at a moment of extreme importance. So um, when Mathieu in Sartre's novel starts to say, I love you to Marcel, what he actually says is, I don't love you. And when he tells Pinette, that resistance to the Germans is pointless, he then reaches for his gun. And Murdoch says this is indeed how we behave. And she produces some wonderful, wonderful passages from Anna Karenina and from The Idiot, Dostoevsky, um, which suggest exactly the same thing. But we will get a detailed reanalysis of the situation in the last one third or the beginning of the last one third of the idea of perfection. In that essay, which is the first part of The Sovereignty of Good, she'll say that we need to reconceive what liberty or freedom involves. And she starts out by sketching this great feeling of emptiness and absence of real reasons at a moment of choice. And the question will be, how do we read this experience? It's a very important experience, it's a real experience. And the existentialist may say there are no such things as reasons at all. The Anglo-American linguistic moral philosopher of the kind that R.M. Hare was, might say, it is for us to choose our reasons. What Murdoch wants to say is it doesn't mean that there are no reasons at work here. It means we have to look elsewhere for the place where the reason cultivation or the attention to reason on our part takes place. We have to look at the whole development of the human being over years, decades of reflection. It's not at the moment of the big, big decision that all the reasons come to mind. A person may act automatically in that moment. They may even act in a certain sense against their latest conscious thought, but on the basis of a lifetime of attunement development of themselves in ways to make them responsive to needs, demands, requirements of situations around them. So she will say it is in the 
background and the development of oneself that one should look for an attention to reasons. And um, I, I think it's wonderful to see how many huge topics are taken exceedingly seriously in the Sartre book. She handles them firmly, but she's not developing at this moment a large structure of response. She'll give her responses, but she doesn't put them in a huge context. That huge context will come. I found it an absolutely wonderful book to read, to reread, to set against her later work. And I must say, I'm only sorry that she didn't get to give us the book on de Beauvoir and Camus as well. Justin, thank you very much indeed. Um, not just for the overview of Romantic Rationalists, but also taking the time to, to give us a close reading of that particular section and, and also to, to point us outwards, I guess, and point us towards where we're going to be moving to um, in her later work, well, of, as you say, of the, 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 uh, the, later more, um, the later mature period, um, when she moves on to Sovereignty of Good. And of course, it, the, she, um, she allows Sartre to appear across her, her non-fictional work, which is where I want to bring Gary in, because Gary, I know that you want to uh, say something about how Sartre appears not just in the in some of the other essays that we find in existentialists and mystics but also of course he appears in her letters as well well thank you uh, thank you Miles and thank you to my the other contributors I, I've, I've learned a lot I'm just listening to to you um, to you now um, and as I have because I've reread um, Sartre romantic rationalist and and most of and, and a lot of other works by um, which bear, which kind of include reference to Sartre before this podcast. And it really is very good stuff, actually, and very tight, very tightly presented. Um, and one of the things that occurred to me as I was reading this again is how um, Murdoch's approach to understanding another thinker or another philosopher. Um, and I think this is um, this is of interest, actually. I mean, there is that letter which I've quoted before to um, Cano, in which she talks about having a mind on the borders of philosophy, literature, and politics. Um, and she's certainly um, attracted to Sartre because Sartre has this expertise and commitment in philosophy, literature, and politics. Um, he's as interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary as she is. Is. Um, and, um, and she does bring these different elements to bear upon her understanding of this thinker. Uh, but and it, it, it also occurs to me that she, she does have quite a profound historical approach to understanding other thinkers uh, and indeed to understanding herself. And I'll come to that in that I think Sartre is is seen to be of great importance to Murdoch because he excites her at, at the beginning, certainly. And he is of interest and he's of interest because he distills in his thinking a response to what could be called the condition of modernity, which um, Murdoch is quite taken up with um, when she kind of. Um, and so I think her approach to understanding the historic thinker here, a, a, another thinker, does reveal or exhibit these, her characteristic approach in understanding someone. And the benefit is, is massive actually, because it has kind of um, uh, 
an understanding which is kind of burgeons and and gives you an interdisciplinary understanding of this interdisciplinary figure, as I think um, Alison was kind of um, articulating. Um, and of course, Murdoch, I think, um, has, I mean, I think um, there is this quotation in the notebooks and indeed in the kind of uh, work on Heidegger of going where the honey is when, when you're seeking to understand another thinker. And I think she does have some, what might be called a, a Gadamer-like approach, whereby the past or the other is to be seen in dialogue. So we are going to have a dialogical relationship with another person, another thinker, or someone from the past that we seek to understand, where ultimately there is an aim of a fusion of horizons, a way of kind of integrating that kind of understanding of the other person, in which there is some contribution to a dialogue on both sides. And I think she wants to see, she sees Sartre as in, she's in dialogue with Sartre. And I think she's in dialogue with Sartre throughout her, throughout the, um, throughout her writing life, really. Um, she does go to, um, she does see Sartre, attends a lecture of his in 45, and she writes at the time um, in a letter that she's really excited by this and it's wonderful, you know, um, and, in her retrospective introduction to Sartre, Romantic Rationalist in 87, she talks about how he was like a pop idol, um, Sartre, and how he was on the crest of the wave. And she sees him as kind of, uh, and I think she gets it right, you know, in he was like that, and she saw him like that. And it was at the end of the war, what do you do when you've been on your knees like France, um, and indeed the whole population, looking for something politically uh, some renewal and some some renewal in thought is there a possibility and Sartre's kind of emphasis upon freedom did appeal was appealing and was exciting and uh, and um the letters of um Murdoch do, is in the 1940s to mainly Raymond Cano and I think her letters to Cano are very interesting always because she talks philosophy and um, to Cano, and um, she kind of conveys her kind of uh, appreciation of Sartre, her excitement at Sartre in, in, in a letter in 46. Um, um, though even at this stage, this is in August 46, and there's a letter of the 7th of August, she talks about his excitement um, and she contrasts the excitement, contrasts Sartre with what she sees as a lack of imagination in contemporary English philosophy, people like Ayer. Um, but she does say, of course, that his analysis of love is quite disenchanting. I mean, she's disenchanted with that because um, it's not a real love in which the other is recognized. And the concept of freedom is too both vague and too kind of um, transparent. It doesn't kind of, it doesn't kind of, um, um, all awareness of the self is, is just urge going for transparency and not really taking on uh, an actual engagement with others. Um, in which others were appreciated outside of an egocentric kind of frame. So this is in 46, she's got a kind of 
uh, a view of Sartre is on the one hand exciting, but also somewhat um, uh, critical of Sartre at the same time. And I think she she is always, um, she develops that in different ways, but um, it's always a kind of mixed reaction. And because she's always thinking when she when she thinks of another thinker or when she's in conversation with anyone, she is thinking all the time and developing her own thought in, in relation to it. And she is someone who picks up on um, many, many different styles of thinking, many, many different styles of personality. And she makes of it. I kind of, in, there's a, a letter in, in, in August 46 to Cano when, when to kind of um, continue the honey um, metaphor. She says that um, she, it's like um, she stays glued to Sartre, like flies stuck in honey. Um, she, she's very, very kind of gripped by Sartre. Uh, and, um, and she says how much she likes him. Um, um, though she, um, she does make some critical remarks about being in nothingness at the same time. Um, um, and these thoughts are kind of articulated more in the essays or the talks she gave on Radio 3, Novelist as a Metaphysician and Existentialist Hero, um, which are interesting. I mean, she doesn't, she hardly writes anything that isn't interesting. And the novelist is metaphysician. She, she wonders, is there something distinctive about these so-called existentialist novelists like Beauvoir and um, Sartre? Um, and I think she thinks there is. Um, she thinks there is because there is something really focused in the way that they take an aspect, if you like, of the modern world, which is its kind of um, its kind of rejection of received truths, its rejection of traditional morality, its rejection of traditional ways of, of being and acting and relying upon individuals and their choice. That's kind of focus she sees as different. And she's mostly excited by it at this point in 1950, um, though she does note that it does render the novel, as she says this in Existentialist Hero, the novels rather limited in that they are um, uh, slightly kind of rationalist, slightly kind of the, the, the figures give tra are transparent in, in what they say. There isn't a kind of a mystery within the novel, which she would adhere to, she thinks needs to be there. And that reflects her, um, her sense that these kind of, um, these um, existentialists, um, Sartre most notably, are kind of um, are mixed. They're onto something. They're picking up something in the historical context. She says that um, in the um, existentialist hero, she she says that Beauvoir and Sartre, these are thinkers after the deluge. You know, um, and what is the deluge? Well, the deluge is something that's referred to, I think, in throughout Murdoch's work, um, but in um, it's it's there in um, in uh, Sartre um, romantic rationalist as well in the in the section the sickness of the language I think she's saying that we live in an age and after the deluge Nietzsche has been God is dead 
um, but also the transparency or the kind of the fact of language which we had taken to be that we were looking through a glass of reality, but not really noticing the glass. And now in the after Nietzsche, in the modern world, we're more than aware that there is a glass and that this frames how we see reality and that there isn't direct access to reality. And that similarly, essences, God, um, speculative truths, are no longer to be accepted. Traditional ties and moralities are questioned. And these, and she sees Sartre, I think, as absolutely central to providing a dramatic and elaborated response and a kind of intense response. And she's attracted to being a nothingness, I think, because even though this is an age after metaphysics, where metaphysics has been questioned, there is something like a framework, like an intensive framework, um, which she finds attractive. And she thinks we, we still, even after the end of traditional metaphysics and so on, some kind of orientation in thought, some kind of vision is needed. And you, one, one can see this in, in essays in Sovereignty of the Good and so on, this will come to the fore, that we, we can't simply uh, get rid of um, our kind of um, vision, our sense of vision, informing vision and frameworks to understand our moral life and our lives. And she's attracted to this in, in, in Sartre. Um, although, and the fact that this is very much in a context, she shows, I think, both in the essays, in her letters, and in Sartre, Romantic Rationalist, that there is a strange affinity between Sartre and Aya and kind of logical positivists more generally, because they are in a sense at one in denying the hold of traditional kind of um, metaphysics and morality. So um, he sees connections between them. And actually in, um, in, in, the, in the Sartre Romantic Rationalist, there's a wonderful section about how she sees um, literature. And this is where she's bringing together literature philosophy and, and politics, um, you know, Rambo and Malame are both, as it were, responding to this intensive reflexivity about our use of language and how this is, a, is an issue. And the one goes for an abundance of language, an abundance of ways of responding, of expression. Um, and the other one is, retreats to a very narrow symbolic kind of code which is thin and different from the world. So um, she sees Sartre as providing a very bold and intense response to some of the issues of the modern age. And this includes, as Alison was saying, politics as well, because um, Sartre rejects kind of uh, as kind of inert and deadening the in itself of the bourgeois world of kind of manners and kind of um, accepted ways of doing things. To accept that is to kind of imprison yourself and to deny that freedom uh, of the self, which um, being in nothingness is about. Um, and the, the, 
the the power actually of both while she came to stay is the toughness of the decision making and of the thinking in in moral terms of the various participants um so um she sees this as um and the politics she sees she finds an attraction i think of Sartre's rejection of that bourgeois world but she sees the problem for Sartre as being what he does and Sartre's kind of willingness to be a fellow traveler with Marxism means that he's got a problem how is he going to link existentialism to um, Marxism and she thinks he doesn't really effectively do it um, he tries a kind of semi-Kantian approach in existentialism is a humanism where you universalize the freedom of the individual. Um, and then he wants to, in the critique of dialectical reason, to come up with some kind of intricate unity of the two. But um, she, she, and I think many others feel that it doesn't really do the job. Sartre comes up with the notion of praxis. And she, in her later writings, is very keen to demarcate herself from utopian politics really of that kind and so specifies axioms or rights which she sees as important but I guess these rights these freedoms that she is keen to kind of tether any kind of understanding of politics to does recognize the individual individuality choice in a sense but within a wider frame um, than Sartre had offered um, in which there was just this egocentric intensivity on in unconsidering choice. So um, I think um, it is interesting what she says about the, the links she makes between Sartre, contemporary philosophy in the UK um, and the historic development of, of philosophy and culture. And also she is very alive to the circumstances of politics at the end of the war, the aspirations, the hopes, um, and then the development of politics, her turn against, because um, in say the essay, um, Existentialist Political Myth in 52 that she wrote, although she's critical of Sartre, she herself wants to find a way between Marxism and liberalism find a way of occupying that space on the left herself um, and doesn't fully kind of develop uh, an answer to it. It, re it remains an aspiration. Um, yeah, but um, her experience of um, the political post-1950s um, and the example, the, the gathering evidence of tyranny and so on, which she felt that Sartre didn't uh, open up to, um, meant that she kind of decisively rejected utopian politics and Marxism and that aspiration of Sartre. And in fact, in the 87 introduction to Sartre, Romantic Rationalist, um, she invokes Adorno, as a more plausible representative of the Marxist tradition, um, which she does again in Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals. Um, and what she likes about Adorno is his recognition that the object or that 
the subject isn't completely dominant. You know, that we always come up with some kind of resistance, some kind of meaningful interface with that which we cannot completely control. And that I think she sees as kind of uh, working into her own account of politics. So um, I've, I've wanted to cover, uh, I think I'm more or less coming to the end, Miles, of what I want to say, but I, I want to say what I'm fascinated by is that with Sartre, as in with other thinkers, she takes from them and she's engaged in a dialogue with them. I um, mean, she, she is a scholar. She reads Sartre very carefully. So she is a scholar. And when she reads historic um, figures like Plato, I mean, she, she knows Plato, but she's also using Plato, developing her own thought in, in relation to Plato, as she does with Sartre. So I think um, reading Sartre and uh, Murdoch together is a wonderful thing to do. And um, I'm grateful for Miles for kind of inviting me on to this. Well, that's it. No, it's an absolute pleasure, Gary. And looking forward to, um, obviously, the new monograph when it when it appears will no doubt have some some more uh, more detail in this area but th but you know drawing all those those ideas together the uh, how important it is to consider murdoch actually not just responding academically but thinking about it you know politically and, and more kind of um, the, the practical applications of how she's thinking through um the, the, the sartre's work is, is fascinating and also the, the links that you've made to the later work which um although we've, we've got a little bit of time left in the podcast i'd like to move and and think about uh, both um, why she uh, re goes back to romantic rationalists in '87, and, and and the new introduction, also the the impact that that Sartre has on the on metaphysics as a guide to morals. So I'm going to bring Alison in at, at this point to uh, to comment on to comment on those, but also anything else that she wants to um, mention in relation to what uh, Gary and, and Justin have have, uh, have just talked about. Thank you. Well, just briefly on the uh, on the re on the rewrite that the later introduction. Um, I think this is her at a greater distance from Sartre because she's she's mellow. She's almost a little tiny bit apologetic um, about the ways in which she has critiqued him so so swingingly in the past. Um, but I mean, we could talk for a whole hour about that. And I, I what I'd like to do, if I may, at this point, is just pick out two other issues which we've touched on tangentially, this whole idea of the play as, from her point of view, Sartre's brilliance, but also what uh, negates the possibility of him being a good writer of novels. The, the, key, the key idea that I was presenting to you today, gentlemen, is this idea that um, it's in the conversation, it's in interaction, it's in discourse, that the human condition can be in some way approached and possibly sometimes resolved. And now we know that in her novels, not only is this a massive failure most of the time because people talk past each other, people misunderstand each other, letters that are written fall into the wrong hands, it's catastrophic very often. But not only that, even worse than that, we also know that she created authors who are good and inarticulate. They're not able to benefit from this, uh, the, the praise that she devotes to um, advocating the use of spoken language, conversation, discourse. So, for example, we've got um, Arthur in A Word Child. We've got Talis in A Fairly Honourable Defeat. We've got Bledyard in The Sandcastle. These are people whose goodness um, is in direct relation to their inability to actually encapsulate in words what it means to deal with 
the surplus of meaning in life. And I, I just think that's, um, that, well, that really shows how brave she was in dealing with her own principles. You know, one of her main principles was the conversation. Her novels are full of conversations. This is the morality of language and text and style. And yet she also creates these characters who, who, who can't manage it. And they, and they can't manage it partly because they are good. Yes, indeed. No, you're, you're, you're quite right on, on that part. Um, Justin, are you seeing that, that connection as well? Very much. And if anything, there's, there's just one large disagreement with Sartre that it seems to me is not quite explicit in the book. And it becomes, I think, crucial. Um, in Sartre, the individual has the desire to make themselves an objective thing, as if, so to speak, the only respectable condition would be that of being an objective thing. And then, of course, one finds one can't do that. Um, the, there's a self-contradiction involved in this particular aspired to status. And what I think becomes really clear in the idea of perfection is that she wants to say, we don't have to have that aim at all. And indeed there are philosophers in here, she particularly seizes upon Austin as one of them, who have gone wrong in objectifying, so to speak, human existence in the world. We should not take, so to speak, the character of what makes a person count as being repentant, say, as being something that can be stated in straightforward, um, objectively accessible terms. The thought is, in the end, that the human perspective may on many occasions be a quite local and quite special and individual perspective. It may be my perspective. It may turn out that there isn't, maybe there's only one other person in the world that I can express this to. And after they're gone, maybe I won't be able to express it at all to anybody. And that is a perfectly genuine form of meaning in the world, even if it turns out that it's not objectively accessible. So here she is, rejecting the demand that Sartre had made for the pour to make itself an ensoir. And it takes a while, I think, for that particular explicit refusal to come into the open with her. But it seems to me that if we see that, then, it, then it's, 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 it's clear what a very fundamental engagement she had with Sartre what uh, this was, how extremely basic it was to her thinking. I mean, it will, other, other figures will feed in, Kant will feed in, Wittgenstein will feed in, uh, Plato will feed in, but in many ways, the most dramatic opposition is the one that she has with Sartre. So where do we end up with uh, Murdoch and Sartre? Um, obviously, he's an important figure within Metaphysics, The Guide to Morals. I wonder if somebody would... Uh like to make a comment on that? I think it's a tough one, actually, because 
I think MGM is a great book. Um, and yet it draws on so many people in so many diverse ways. It's difficult to pin down exactly what she's kind of using it for uh, and what she's drawing upon. Um, as I understand it, I mean, she is looking at the history of philosophy, the engagement of philosophy, and looking through um, and looking at consciousness, looking at kind of the development of consciousness and how values are there at the beginning. And she's looking at the various dimensions of experience. And, and so Sartre is drawn in there and some of what he has to say about the indeterminacy of consciousness at some level is taken on board, but she's also critical for the, the isolated individuality of the focus. And then she engages in, a, in, a, in an, an implicit and at times explicit critique of Sartre in the morals and politics section in which she, um, in which she wants to kind of um, stress how we need to find, way, uh, find a way of having a public morality in which individuals are respected and rights are granted. Um, and, and that we need to engage in, in a, uh, and have space for moral kind of development um, in a way that Sartre didn't fully recognize. So I think she draws on Sartre, but she's, she's critical. Um, sure, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, was, I, was thinking, I was thinking about this because um, he actually, he's, um, Sartre's work is kind of referenced throughout MGM and it's interesting that she mentions him in void in the in the uh, in the 18th chapter she says that Sartre's nothingness with its uh, with its ancestry in, in Canton Kierkegaard is more like an exciting springboard than a void and she says yeah. that um you know well, she says it's not relevant to the void doesn't she yeah in she, the she, chapter she, on the void yeah. yeah she does indeed yeah and um it, it's interesting that she still sees his work as um as, as relevant to the entire conversation that she hasn't just left him behind but she's still mm. actively engaging throughout that work so uh, no it's um important to recognize that he's there not just in the 50s and into the 70s but throughout you know she's she's constantly thinking about him yeah no i think as, as i commented in my piece um i think for her he is the other and and she needed him that she benefited heuristically enormously from critiquing him and he was a, the companion who offers the not not maybe it's a hegelian dialectic example but certainly he offered so much to her that was not present in british philosophy sure yes i mean she you know she found it earthy aggressive sexy a bit grubby the whole parisian presentation of ideas was very different from as you as somebody referenced earlier on um aj Ayer and the the ordinary language philosophers who were brilliant in their way but she she did i think she really looked towards the continent to yeah. to complement everything she wanted to achieve well i think i said earlier that, that, that there's an affinity she sees an affinity between say Ayer and ryle and kind of um and sartre but she does say that this is done in a different idiom mm -hmm. and that Ryle, if you read Ryle, you get a sense of cricket and baking cakes and and so on. Whereas if you're reading kind of Sartre in the continent, you get the sense of um, you get the sense of love. You get the sense of um, you know you get the sense of love joining the Communist Party. You get a very different take on experience, even though they're informed by related 
ideas. And she throws in Michael Oakeshott into that discussion as well. Um, but one of the things you were saying about conversation, Alison, I mean, and, and I was kind of um, urging that she has a dialogical relationship to other thinkers. I mean, she does. So I think dialogue and conversation is important for her, both in thinking heuristically, but also in, in politics. And I noticed that in the book, in the Brotherhood, there is this radical kind of uh, utopian politics, Marxist politics, by articulated by Crimmon, who writes the book, and 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 uh, you know others in the book disagree with it, and Murdoch disagrees with it, no doubt. Um, and yet she still thinks somehow it it should be published. It's worth discussing because I think dialogue is important. And I take from that that she thinks that notwithstanding Sartre's messy end on the critique of dialectical reason and so on, he's still worth engaging with because we are and should be in dialogue with others. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Justin, I'd like to leave the, the last word to you. Where should um, listeners begin with, uh, should they go for Romantic Rationalist or is there something else that you would recommend? Oh, I think the essays in Existentialists and Mystics are, Terrific. The novelist as metaphysician, the existentialist hero, these are both from the listener, uh, from radio talks that she gave in 1950, uh, the existentialist political myth, 1952. Those are, in some ways, I think, easier to get into, but then I think the 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 1953 book is an absolute delight. Um, it may take a while, but I recommend the harder you find it, the better it is to go slowly. Treat it like poetry and it will reward you. And if you try to go fast, then you'll find it, it doesn't go in. Sure, and it bears rereading and, um, and reflecting upon. But yeah, I think this, it's a good idea to, to start with some of the... Uh, the more um, accessible essays in existentialists and mystics. That's uh, a very, a very good in idea indeed. Well, we've come to the end. So thank you very much indeed to uh, my guests, to Alison Scott Bauman, to Justin Brokes and to Gary Browning. And my thanks to you all for listening. <laughs>